Hi, everybody. Welcome again to another episode of the Trauma Podcast. This is Joe DeBose, and joining me again today, uh, live from his quarantined location in his home, is uh, Dr. David Feliciano. Thank you again for joining us, Dr. Feliciano. Thank you, Joe, for having me. Um, Today, I've kind of put a topic that's going to be tough to fit into the context. We talked a little bit about this, and it's really only one tubular organ that stretches for a length of, I don't know, 30 to 40 centimeters, perhaps, uh, and it's the esophagus. Uh, but it does present a lot of clinical challenges and uh, kind of still some unresolved questions about the optimal management. And I'm hoping that you can help us get to at least your perception of what the optimal management is in 2020 for some of these. So fortunately, these injuries to the esophagus are rare. Um, uh, they're uncommon um, and mostly penetrating in nature. But I do want to take a, a, a moment to talk about blunt as we dive into kind of the penetrating piece a little bit later in the podcast portion. What kind of blunt injuries have you seen and encountered? When should we be suspicious for a blunt injury for esophagus? It's uh, incredibly rare, as you mentioned. It's uh, usually people with some uh, sudden movement in the neck, a sudden flexion, a sudden extension maybe with a vertebral fracture that uh, impales, if you will, the esophagus. These get missed a lot because people focus on the other injuries the patient has, like a traumatic brain injury and all. Bottom line is, if you are doing any kind of imaging on a trauma patient with head and neck trauma, and you see some gas in the retroesophageal or retropharyngeal air um, area, those two things start tipping you off even if the patient can't tell you that they're symptomatic you just shouldn't have air there unless you've had a you know major pneumothorax with a lot of uh, subcutaneous and, and other spread okay well now let's shift to penetrating mechanisms obviously more more common uh, and I think from an anatomical standpoint, we often divide these into the neck and thoracic portions for consideration and discussion. I'd like to kind of do that here so we can kind of break those down a little bit. So if we start with the neck, what are the signs and symptoms associated with penetrating esophageal injuries to the neck? Yeah, the symptoms have always been the same. <laughs> Excuse me, it's either, you know, dysphagia or odynophagia where uh, patients have trouble swallowing and they find it painful. On physical exam, you know, you'll occasionally, as with a tracheal injury, see air coming out of a penetrating wound hole. What a lot of centers in less developed countries do is called a SIP test, where they simply offer the patient a glass of water and if the patient complains bitterly about the amount of pain they have, then that's certainly a tip off you ought to image the patient okay uh, what imaging studies are useful with regards to the net for penetrating injuries uh, first the regular x-ray uh, again it will help track a bullet and then again if you see air in a funny location posteriorly that is a tip off but most people with either the cervical or thoracic esophagus are still going to start with a, a gastrograph and swallow the concern has always been that if you aspirate it, it'll create uh, a lot of pneumonitis, but basically if it's done properly, the patient should not aspirate. If there is not a clear-cut leak, but a suggestion of a leak, then most centers will go to a, a barium swallow of some kind, or you can replace everything with a C CT esophagogram. 
big problem with CT is that there, there are very little data in the Toronto literature over the past 15 years on this. So traditionally, a gastrographin, then barium, some people use what's called watery barium. But with uh, those two studies, uh, followed by flexible endoscopy for either the cervical or thoracic esophagus, I've never had a miss that I know of. Um, the literature says 95 to 98% accurate in making a diagnosis with those two studies. So we've always stayed with that. I think we'll just need more data on uh, CT contrast studies of the esophagus. In what patients do you think the CT is most useful? I always think about gunshot wounds where I can see a clear track that's away from the esophagus. Am I being too cavalier and thinking and being comfortable with some of those? No, I think that's fine. Uh, you know, a lot of people with uh, penetrating wounds in zone two are now doing sort of a screening CT, as you say, to see where the track is. And then if the track is near the uh, aorta posteriorly or the esophagus, you can choose a, a study to best illuminate those organs. Um, one would be IV contrast and one would be GI contrast. Ideally, you would do the IV contrast study first. That would be the greater threat to the patient's life if you have a missed aortic injury. And then follow up with a uh, contrast study for the esophagus. problem with bullets, as you well know, is that there's a certain amount of scatter on a CT <laughs> and therefore uh, the CT may not give you an area that you really need to see. If that's the case, then you would simply go to one of the traditional studies. Now, if we break this down into, we've kind of talked about the cervical so far. What about thoracic esophageal injuries? All those modalities that you talked about, what is the role of the esophagram, uh, um, CT, and even esophagoscopy for the thoracic portion? Of yeah, the, the biggest problem is if somebody's got a bullet in the posterior mediastinum, they've obviously got other injuries, pneumothorax, hemothorax, or other things. and. Patients often can't give you any real help because symptoms like dysphagia or dinophagia are simply not as clear once you're out of the upper airway or the upper esophagus. So I think it's the same thing if you have a stable patient and the missile in any way appears to be close to the posterior mediastinum. You've got two structures there that you worry about and you do it in the same sequence. If your CT by itself without contrast doesn't give you an answer, then you have to do the contrast studies to rule out injuries to the thoracic esophagus and or the uh, descending thoracic aorta. They do get missed because people get focused on the other thoracic injuries like, oh my gosh, there's a, a huge hemothorax or you know, we're not sure if there was a heart injury or not. But once you track these missiles, you know, it's a small organ, rarely injured, but if your missile goes anywhere near it, you've got to do some kind of diagnostic study, and if the first one doesn't give you the answer, you'll have to go on to the traditional studies of a swallow and a flexible esophagoscopy. You know, traditionally, you look in a lot of the text, the older textbooks, and they talk about rigid um, esophagoscopy. When did we make the change, and sh is that a universal change now from shifting from rigid to flexible esophagoscopy? Yeah, uh, the change uh, came before you were born, pretty much. <laughs> back in the, it was way back in the '80s, <coughs> where we didn't have a, a set of general surgeons who had done. Uh, 
rigid bronchoscopies or esophagoscopies in their training and it just became so much easier and quicker to do uh, flexible. There's not a great indication for rigid ones in my opinion unless you really have to clear the esophagus or the trachea of food or blood or something that you can see so well with flexible scope so easily 40 years ago things started to convert and it's primarily it's easier on everybody to use the flexible scope and do you give up much in accuracy not according to the literature really because there are no more current comparisons since everybody uses flexible scopes yeah, not a lot, didn't undergo a lot of study, but certainly seems to be the, the practice pattern of the day in 2020. So once we identify these injuries, we talked a little bit about the tools you can use to identify them. A lot of, uh, you know, the, the things you have to think about when I'm faced with these is how do I expose this, right? And so what incisions do I use? For the same reason it's very rarely injured because it's so well protected in the back of the neck, in the back of the chest, it's also tough to expose in some instances. So if we break these down into anatomical regions again, how do you, what's your choice for exposure to, a, say, a stab wound or to the, to the esophagus in the neck if uh, you have a side that's clearly where the entrance was you would usually do that um, if you have a traverse left to right bullet or right to left most people are probably going to go on the left side um, but you can go on either side for the cervical esophagus. Uh, just simply, uh, once you ligate the facial vein and you get in the groove between the vessels and the trach and esophagus, you just retract the vessels laterally and then feel where the vertebrae are. And the esophagus is right on top of that. The only issue here is avoiding, as you get lower in the neck, the recurrent laryngeal nerve. But a routine exploration for the esophagus in the lower part of the neck, I just always make it a point to find the recurrent nerve and get it out, get it, you know, loop the esophagus and pull it out to me, but only after I have identified the recurrent nerve. Hardest thing with the esophagus, particularly with uh, low caliber bullets, is you often don't see a lot when you first look at the organ, even if you have a contrast study demonstrating a perforation. So what you want to do is look for hematoma staining the muscle wall of the esophagus. If you can't really identify something, and again, you're either highly suspicious or know you have an injury, you can put like an amp of methyl and blue and 200 mLs of normal saline, and then just clamp the esophagus as far down the neck as you can with a non-crushing clamp and have anesthesia put an NG tube up high. And much like the stomach and other parts of the GI tract, if you drip in methyl and blue and there's a hole, you'll see the staining very quickly. Other people just inject about 30 to 50 mLs of air above a clamp on the distal esophagus. And again, you put the field under saline and look for air bubbles uh, coming out through the saline. So if, you, if you're pretty convinced you're, you've got something there, but you can't localize it precisely, and use one of these other adjunctive ways to make the diagnosis intraoperatively. 
you talked a little bit about the NG tube. What are your thoughts? Because we often teach that if you can't find the esophagus in a soup of hematoma or some obscured anatomy, that feeling for the NG tube is useful. But placement of an NG tube when and in the setting of a known esophageal injury or a suspected one, what's the what are the pros and cons there? Um, it's unusual for you not to be able to find the esophagus, and, and with the maneuvers I mentioned the whole I have no problem putting a tube in I, my biggest problem with NG tubes frankly is I never understand why people leave them in after the esophageal repair in the neck uh, you know there's a leak rate but it rarely is going to prevent the patient from feeding for very long and it's a small organ to begin with and you're putting some irritant on the suture line so traditionally when I do an esophageal repair that's routine in the neck. I pull the NG tube out post-op because I, I don't see what it gains you because I'm probably going to be able to feed the patient anyway. Just okay. personal. Okay. What about, let's move now down to thoracic. How do we, what's our decision choice and exposure tips for the thoracic esophagus? Yeah, it depends on the level, as you know. The proximal lesions in the trachea and the esophagus really should be explored through the right chest. So they're opposite the aortic arch and descending aorta, which gets in your way on the left. The further down you go, usually within five or seven centimeters of the G junction, it's okay to do a left chest incision because there's no aortic arch down there, and you have pretty good exposure as the esophagus swings a little bit more to that side. So up high, uh, right thoracotomy, down low, left thoracotomy. And basically, you just dig the esophagus out of the posterior mediastinum, just divide the uh, mediastinal pleura, find your uh, aorta, and the other structure there is the esophagus, and then, you know, mobilize it so you can see where the injury is. Okay, and, and it, you know, the esophagus is kind of an interesting organ, and it really spans three cavities, right? The neck, the right. chest, and the yep. abdomen. What about the gastroesophageal junction area? If you've got one in that vicinity, do you start in the chest? Do you go to the belly? How do you, how do you facilitate that? I've, I've done injuries as high as about four centimeters above the GE junction through a midline incision. Um, if you position the patient properly, use a, a retractor to elevate the sternum, uh, you can usually get back there without a lot of problem. And once you peel away the fibers of the esophageal hiatus, you can usually see well. So anything within, I think, you know, whatever, two to four, four to five centimeters, to me, it's just as easy to go through the abdomen, particularly if you have a gunshot wound where the other injuries are going to be in the abdomen, like liver and diaphragm and stuff like that. I would only choose the chest if it was up a little higher or they had a history of upper abdominal surgery with scarring. Okay, so that's that covers exposure for us. What what about now we've got this injury exposed, uh, it's sitting out where we can get to it, we feel like we've defined it well. How do we go about repairing these at these various locations in the neck, chest, and gastroesophageal junction? Yeah, most of the books will tell you to split the muscle far enough so you can see the extent of the hole in the esophageal mucosa then you can close the mucosa with an absorbable suture and then close the muscle layer above that with other uh, stitches of like 3 ovicral. I have repaired uh, the esophagus with single layer 3 ovicral in patients where I just 
you know, everything was fine. I could see everything clearly. There's never been any clear-cut data that two layers versus one layer changes your leak rate much as the colon. So I think it's a bit of a fielder's choice, but for young people listening, it would be a two-layer closure. And I just use all absorbable suture on this and the tray kit. What about protection of those repairs? I mean that, I mean, in terms of coverage of the suture line and also kind of diverting the, the, you know, the feeding access and those kind of things. When do those come into play? If you have a combined injury in the neck, which would be bullet holes in the esophagus and trachea right in apposition to one another, if you have a hole in the esophagus and a carotid injury nearby, or if you have a trachea and esophageal injury by themselves without a vascular injury, I do think, and the data are pretty clear, that you'll do well to swing some muscle if the repairs are anywhere close to one another for the obvious reason that the esophagus in the neck has about a 5 to 25% leak rate historically, and you don't want that leaking on your tracheal repair or a carotid injury that you've repaired. So I either detach the sternal head of the sternocleidomastoid, or you can detach the entire sternocleidomastoid inferiorly and just swing it in obviously if you detach the whole muscle it really contracts considerably so the further down your injury is if you have combined injuries the harder it will be to get something to reach in there i've never been a fan of the strap muscles they have a modest blood supply they're not really meant to be rotated around if you really want to put a buttress in between combined injuries and it's down too far, you can actually detach the sternocleidomastoid from the mastoid process. Because of its tripartite blood supply, you can rotate it 360 degrees. Having said that, I've never done it, because usually you can get the sternal head down there with a little bit of traction. But combined injuries in the neck, I think you had a buttress. Delayed injuries in the thorax, I think you had a buttress. Um, You can raise a three-sided pleural flap and just uh, swing it over the top of the esophagus. Uh, Dave Richardson described many years ago using the rhomboid muscle of the back and bringing it through the third intercostal space to wrap around a tenuous esophageal repair up high. Other people have talked about skeletonizing an intercostal muscle flap and wrapping it. Do you have to wrap every esophageal repair? I think if you're getting to surgery early there are not combined injuries and it's a modest amount of the diameter i I don't think there's any data that you have to do that but with uh, combined injuries in the neck or delayed injuries in the thoracic esophagus definitely a vascularized pedicle would be ideal you talked a little bit about not liking to have at least in the neck an ng tube across that suture line what about um how do you manage feeding in these patients i know some of them you anticipate you'll be able to feed early and easily but if you don't know do you do you have do you place a nasogenal tube a nasogastric feeding tube or you go to a peg tube yeah if i had a really tenuous uh, thoracic esophageal repair where i would prefer not to feed them for a while or have a suspicion of a leak later, then you can choose what you want. Again, I don't 
I don't have a crusade against putting tubes through a repaired esophagus, so I would choose whether to do a peg, as you say, or use a nasojejunal tube that's maybe nine French, something that's not a, a big bulky NG tube. Okay. What about, you know, uh, the, I have seen them used before for kind of devastating esophageal injuries that you, in a damage control setting, you're just not going to be able to reconstruct at the, at the short term, or there's too much esophagus missing and you're going to have to ultimately rotate something up. Uh, what about proximal diversion with a spit fistula? Um, outside of those instances, or in general, uh, the spit fistula, when do you use, utilize it, and what are your tips for placing a spit fistula? So one of the rules for me is if I have some esophagus in continuity, meaning it's not completely separated, I will never divide the rest of it because once you divide an esophagus in the neck or in the upper thorax, you have committed the patient to a major horrific reoperation at some point. So if you've lost, let's say, 75% of your circumference or you have too much swelling or contamination, I just bring that out like a loop colostomy. Having said that, it's really hard to do, but if you skeletonize the whole back of the esophagus off the vertebral column, make sure your recurrent nerves are, are moved away and put some traction, you can actually bring an injury out as an exteriorized injury, even if it means through the cervical in, uh, incision, the oblique incision. Because the tension is so tight, I've only done this about four times, but on the latter two or three, I did put a little rubber, red rubber tube under the loop to keep it above the skin level. And one of the interesting things that happens is, well, one, you don't get a leak, and two, this esophagus that you've exteriorized starts to shrink, and it starts pulling itself back to the midline because it doesn't mean to be out laterally. And the closure of a loop esophagostomy, not a spit fistula, is surprisingly easy if you give everything time to settle down and get the edema out of the area of injury. In the thorax, you know, there, there are a variety of things thoracic surgeons have done, but <clears throat> if you really have a tenuous repair that you are not going to be able to complete or there's too much contamination, there are variations on a theme called the Miller-Abbott tube. And this is just uh, two chest tubes, if you will, sewn together as a T, like a T-tube in the bile duct, okay. where you simply put the T-tube through the hole and bring it out as a chest tube. And then again, over time, what happens is the hole with all its edema and all sorts of sort of shrinks, and I don't know whether there's actual healing there, but these things divert the foul bacteria from the mouth away from a repair. Could you do that in the neck? I think so. I mean, if you could get, you know, 80% of the cervical esophageal repair done, but feel there's too much tension to complete the corner, you can put a T-tube in. The goal is not to have all that saliva puddling around the neck or near your other repairs of the trachea or the uh, carotid. Good stuff. Let me change one thing. I, I misspoke. It's the Abbott... Mansour tube 
Kamal Mansour was a thoracic surgeon at Emory when I was there and one of his residents and he wrote a paper that's been repeatedly quoted over the years as an interesting way to divert a thoracic esophagus without taking it apart. Good stuff. I, I've never personally used that one, but I'm going to keep that in the toolkit for sure. Um, so let's say we've gotten the repair done postoperatively. Now, what are your tips for management after the repair? Uh, specifically, when do you re-image them? When do you refeed them? When do we start taking drains and stuff out? What are your tips and your approach to that management phase? In the in the neck, I and I have a good repair. I do drain them all. I do put a number seven or ten JP in the sort of TE groove right below the esophageal repair. But if my drainage has been mainly clear and the patient's doing well, the old trick is to just give them a glass of grape juice on the third or fourth day. And if nothing comes out of your drain, a lot of people in the good old days used to just pull it. But I don't image my cervical repairs. With thoracic esophagus, uh, morbidity could be significant with a leak. So I pretty much do it like a surgeon has done an esophagogastrectomy with an esophagogastrostomy and anastomosis, and that is somewhere between seven and ten days they do an upper GI series to make sure that everything's fine. If you have a small leak and you have good chest tubes in place, you just keep them on TPN another week, re-image them. If you have a big leak, I think the thoracic surgeons have pretty much gone to stents at this point unless they feel they absolutely have to re-operate. So with mid-esophagus or distal esophagus, I, I actually usually do study them between seven and ten days. So you might want to consider starting TPN early if you have a high-risk situation in those locations because I'm not going to study them right away. Okay. What about the entity of the, you know, it's it's rare, fortunately, but occasionally we get these missed or delayed uh, esophageal injuries or even perforations from acute care surgery type pathologies. Um, any tips on how to manage those? That's not your fresh injury and there's some confounding factors for optimal care. Uh, how do you approach these and what advice would you give to our listeners? Uh, very similar to a mystoadenal injury, you probably ought to take some precautions beyond just trying to cobble it back together. If it was really a catastrophe in the neck, then I would, if possible, try and exteriorize it. If it was too low for the injury to be exteriorized, I would consider bringing up a proximal loop, just like a proximal colostomy, to divert things away from the hole and let it settle down over time. In the thoracic esophagus, you're going to get terrible mediastinitis and a really sick patient. So again, if you have really had a delay and the repair just doesn't look very good, I'd, I'd consider uh, the Abbott Mansour tube and lots of drainage and TPN, etc. I've never had a bad... Uh, well, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> Leaks around the G junction are uncommon because you have a lot of things down there that you can buttress your repair with. As you know, you can use a, if you have a tenuous repair or a little late diagnosis, you can bring up a, a three-sided flap, like almost like a Bowery flap in the bladder and cover the esophageal repair. Um, you can bring up a, part of the stomach and do either a door or a toupee fundoplication 
most people don't bother to buttress in a soft gel repair with a Nissan because it's more work. But a 180 degree wrap or a diaphragm flap would be an option if you think you can get the edges together. Again, if you can't, you probably ought to consider either cervical diversion or put in a, a, a Abbott Mansour tube. What is, you know, we've often, these big, a lot of people in the literature have tried to hang uh, a time interval on this delayed diagnosis thing. You know, is it 12, 24, 48 hours? How do you make the decision to say, I'm going to frame shift into treating this like a delayed esophageal injury? Yeah, I, I don't know if there's a perfect time interval for the esophagus. I, when when duodenal injuries were more of a problem in the past, there were there was very interesting data that if you miss the duodenal injury for like 48 hours, my mentors in Detroit, doctors Lucas and Ledger, would describe to 40 to 50 percent mortality. That was in another time, but you know it seems to me you're going to have terrible mediastinus within 24 hours, and doing a repair in that. Uh, milieu if you will is probably not going to hold so you ought to think about the things we talked about possible proximal diversion possibly leaving the hole open and just diverting it what about uh, you know fortunately even more rare uh, either post repairs a complication of our attempts to repair these or de novo for missed injuries we do see occasionally tracheoesophageal fistulas um, tips for managing these uh, you know what besides just making sure that if you go in and attack it you get a lot of muscle between the two do you have any tips that you can give us yeah they're different than the malignant ones that the cancer surgeons have to deal with they don't heal uh, that's one of the problems usually because the organs are in uh, you know apposition of one another and they'll epithelialize very quickly in general you'll probably have to reoperate debris both structures repair them and then try and swing some kind of muscle flap in everybody delays on reoperation in those patients because it's so unpleasant but if you get in the cycle where the patient's aspirating on a regular basis, you're going to end up with another whole set of problems in addition to the fistula. So if you can document it, I think you should do something. I have no idea what the data are on TE fistulas and a stent up high. I, I just don't know. I assume somebody's done it and published, but it would seem to me uh, be hard to get it to close that way. But if data comes available, that's a good way, fine. And we didn't talk a lot about stents in, utilized in, in all these kind of locations and pathologies. What, what are your thoughts on that technology? Is it can, I know we have a lot to learn about it, but do you see some utility there with uh, these temporizing stents? I do, but it's unclear whether that's an improvement, for example, over just a good operation, particularly in the thoracic esophagus. But if I had a patient who was, you know, poor risk for a variety of reasons, uh, other medical comorbidities, frailty, what have you, and I could clearly uh, see where the leak was, then I, I think a stent would be worthwhile. But again, I'm not an expert on esophageal stents, particularly in the thoracic uh, area, but it does make sense in select patients who will not tolerate a major thoracotomy to consider that with the GI people putting it in. What about delayed injuries as a kind of an, uh, an adjunct for utilization? I think it's a consideration. Um, I think most people, particularly with a thoracic esophagus, want to clean out 
the posterior mediastinum and get some great drains up there and then decide what you're going to do with the esophagus. So that in that location, I'm not sure a stent would be ideal if there's been a delay, mainly because of the extent of contamination. I mean, as you, as you know, if you've ever seen a patient with mediastinus from a mediastinitis from a mesesophageal injury is horrible. I mean, it smells like, you know, all the oral bacteria, very devastating. So good drainage would probably preclude a stent in those locations. Good stuff, Dr. Feliciano. We covered a lot of ground, uh, and we are going to conclude again with our random questions, which I hope you'll be uh, willing to entertain again today. Are you up for your random questions? Sure. All right. You've been a competitive boat racer, and we've actually talked in your in the age of quarantine a little bit about uh, you might come out of retirement and rejoin the power boat racing community. Uh, I'm I've been trying to learn a little bit about this, and I'm fascinated by all the different classes of power boat racing and the V hole versus the catamaran hole types. What are the pros and cons of these different holes that you can utilize in the, in power boat racing? For the, for the big inboards, uh, catamarans go over the waves because they have that air tunnel underneath. They do, unfortunately, have a tendency to blow over, so there is a plate at the back that will hopefully keep the boat level. V-shaped boats, particularly with offshore powerboat racing, go through the waves, may not get quite as much speed, though that may be debatable, have a little less of a tendency to blow over. Uh, all the classes that have hydroplanes, regular inboards or outboards like I drove, are catamarans, if you will. They all have a tunnel underneath where air goes under the boat and the boat is actually out of the water. So catamarans are faster, but probably a little bit less safe. So your new, your next boat will be another catamaran, I assume? Yeah, another hydroplane, yeah. Okay, all right. Uh, what a lot of opportunities to watch movies these days and there um, what uh, what's your favorite movie or what your genre or actor actresses what are you watching now and and why do you like that genre or actor uh, my favorite movie without question is top gun i probably have seen it now 50 times <laughs> uh, i took i when i was a navy officer in california there was a naval air station near our base called Point Magoo and I took care of the pilots from Point Magoo and I always found it fascinating that the people driving these 30 to 50 million dollar jets at that time were just kids with a big sense of adventure so I've always been fascinated by people who fly jets so Top Gun is without question my favorite Any favorite actor or actress that you prefer? Um Probably Harrison Ford because he has a a common man appeal in addition to being a hero in many of his movies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Indiana Jones. I, I could binge watch those all day long. Um, I know a tremendous amount of work. I've seen it in your the evidence of this in your office with the stacks of paper and uh, the inordinate amount of work that you you put have to put into the trauma textbook with the new version that's very soon coming out. Uh, right. What are the biggest hassles with being an editor for an industry standard textbook? Biggest thing is uh, surgeons are not usually uh, majors in English in college. So there's a tendency for some bad writing until people get experience. And the second thing that drives me nuts is people send in chapters that after their secretary types that they don't proof it. 
So we've had interesting problems like actually an entire reference missing or two references exactly the same in a chapter with 170 references. So my recommendation to people when they write are, you know, do your outline first. Don't be afraid to do multiple drafts. And I never write anything without two dictionaries on my desk, I swear. My wife will verify it. We have a regular dictionary and a medical dictionary. And anytime you have a a word you're unsure of, you just check it immediately. Because we spend a lot of time proofing all these chapters. And we continue to find words that are completely wrong. So it it takes a little discipline to do this. Uh, I guess the last comment I'm going to make is when you write it, it doesn't make total sense to you. you. It's a guarantee the reader will be confused. So those kind of sentences should be rephrased or taken out. Always. Well, I just I have to ask: Is it do you use the spell check and electronic web-based uh, dictionary, or do you are you still old school? I like the paper version sitting on my desk. Yeah, when I'm writing, I don't I don't bother because I don't write on the computer. I'm, you can use spell check. I don't have any problem with that. But I love having those dictionaries right in front of me. I use them every day, honestly. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, What do you see? You've seen your career has spanned uh, a a lengthy time of really kind of iconic (laughs) period. (laughs) I'm not trying to call you an old timer or anything, I promise. But you've had you've really lived trauma, essentially, from the from its very inception as a specialty through the modern era. And so I, I, I always enjoy our conversations about where we've been, where we are and where we're going. Where do you see trauma going in the next decade? And what advice do you give for those of us who are trying to navigate this next decade of changes? Well, one thing is obvious is that certainly for abdominal trauma, in reasonably stable patients, we'll do more and more like the Japanese and we'll do laparoscopic procedures, particularly in patients with stab wounds where you may have a limited number of injuries or blunt trauma where a stable patient probably doesn't have a major liver or splenic injury. So I think they're going to be more laparoscopic laps. The second thing is really sad, and it's going to be the involvement of multiple specialists in injuries that general surgeons just don't take care of very much. And we're going to see more and more HPB specialists called in on major liver trauma. Obviously, vascular surgeons called in on primarily uh Uh, peripheral but some abdominal vascular trauma and certainly thoracic surgeons uh, called in for a lot of things in the chest like a bad lung injury I think the involvement of specialists is part of a trend it doesn't appeal to me at all it does detract from the operative experience for general surgeons interested in trauma but it's hard to fight right now because of the change in general surgery training where many people just don't get the exposure to some of these things that they need to. So I think that'll be one of the big changes. There'll be less and less available surgeons with a competence or or confidence to operate in the chest, the neck, the abdomen, and peripherally. 
Yeah, it's going to be a challenge. It'll be interesting to see how we uh, navigate some of that. Well, Dr. Feliciano, I, I really do want to thank you again for your time. Uh, for the listeners, this has again been another episode of the Trauma Podcast. Please check out all of our offerings wherever you consume podcasts. And if you have any suggestions or additional topics that you feel like we need to address, please email us at thetraumapodcast at yahoo.com. That's all one word, thetraumapodcast at yahoo.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>